what do we do when we find ourselves up against the many leadership challenges that exist within our chosen careers? We all have goals and achievements that we would like to accomplish. Unfortunately, these desires don't come equipped with insight or awareness on how to bring these accomplishments to light. In essence, this is why the Dream Octane Niche Finder Framework was formed. Our founder, Clifton C. Manning, spent the first 17 of his 20-year career in healthcare working with physicians and healthcare leaders to achieve patient-centric goals while possessing only an associate's degree in applied science. At times, these challenges were daunting and he felt unqualified to achieve the success he wanted. However, he focused on becoming intentional in reading every leadership book that he could find, as well as attending frequent seminars in areas where he saw opportunities to improve. Over time, as he applied insights gained from these various sources, he was able to successfully and efficiently cross the hurdles he found himself up against. Eventually, varying degrees of success within his sphere of leadership influence became more evident. The Niche Finder podcast is intended to bring similar insight to you, the listener, from those who have achieved some level of noteworthy success in their chosen career. Our hope is that the challenges they have overcome in the past will provide insight for your current leadership struggles and unlock the dream of achieving success in your own career. We believe that if innovative change is an engine, your unique dreams and abilities could be its fuel. And now I present to you the host of the Niche Finder podcast, Clifton C. Manning. Well, I want to welcome you to this version of the Niche Finder podcast. You know, I'm very privileged to have Dr. James Richardson on today. Uh, this is uh, someone who started out as a cultural anthropologist, and uh, but then dovetailed this way into uh, becoming a business strategist. And what he focuses in on are growth strategies and for fast growing consumer brands, uh, such like the Kind Bar. I would yes. imagine. Uh, like the Kind Bar. That's what he, these are the type of brands that he pretty much gives uh, a tough talking to, to to let them know that it's not about you, it's about your business. And I'm here to help you, right? Not to make you feel good. And so he does it in uh, a way that must be effective because guess what? People keep calling them back. <laughs> <laughs> and so by, by way of this introduction, I want to make Dr. James Richardson welcome. So thank you for being part of this program. Thank you, Cliff, for that lovely introduction. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, let's get right into is what do you consider to be your niche? I would say my niche is uh, strategic planning for early stage, fast growing consumer brands that want to scale and have a huge impact on American society. Mm, very good. Uh, now, why would the audience have a vested interest in this journey of yours? <laughs> I think that folks who have ever had to make a radical career change, not fully in their control, uh, are going to get a lot out of this story because <laughs> mm. my journey makes no sense rationally to any college career counselor whatsoever. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you wrote a book called Ramping Your Brand, How to Ride the Killer CPG Growth Curve. What is that all about and how will that help the community? So that's really for my client base. And those are consumer brand manufacturers, you know, snack bars, soft drink companies, things like that. So that's what the book is about. The book is not about my journey, um, which we're going to talk about. But I do have a lovely, entertaining preface. It's about three pages long, which you can 
if you buy it on the audio, if you have a Kindle, if you look, if you have an Audible subscription, just download it for free and you can listen to the preface and just stop there. I won't be insulted. <laughs> but that's my three page written, my attempt to rationally explain the insane journey. Of it. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. <laughs> well, at the start of your journey, what did you want to accomplish? If I define the start as trying to function as an independent consultant, you know, setting my own terms for who I work with and what I'm doing, which was really important to me at the age of 44. Hmm. <laughs> I would say that the thing that I was starting out, I, I wanted autonomy. I wanted the ability to have, this is going to sound really bad. I wanted the ability to, to have clients who had already, they'd researched me. They already wanted to work with me so that I could have a client base that was buying my analytical authority so that mm. I could do what I do best, mm. which is take a complex thing and very rapidly decode the problems, the things that people are missing, and then deliver that as an analytical and strategic consulting package to people without the, just the political BS of being a mm. typical consultant working for large companies. Mm. And so I have Asperger's Cliff, which means I don't, I just can't deal with the politics of human life. I, that, that's my anthropological explanation. I just can't handle it, mm. which is ironic because I'm a student, but that's probably why I'm good because I'm so alienated by it. Mm. And so I was working with, you know, when I started this journey to work on my own, I was working with highly bureaucratized public firms. Mm. These are people. Their idea of a meeting is minimum 15 people and half the people are totally redundant, just arguing with each other. Mm. Posturing, uh, trying to get to the next meeting where they can say something smart and advance their career. I mean, it's literally, it literally is like that. Mm. And I, you know, that's fun to study as a social scientist. I'd love to write a book. I don't want to be part of that just personally. I cannot yeah. be in those human situations. They make me want to vomit. They make me mm. disgusted. Um, nobody's being authentic. So I don't like highly political social situations unless I'm studying. Mm. So the best way for me to work with my neurology is to help people one-to-one. -one. But you know, as a consultant, you can't do that when you work inside a firm because yeah. you, you get sold into political shows and you get thrown into them. Mm. And so a lot of your value add, like as a management consultant at the big firms is actually how you negotiate the firm's image inside the client organization. It has nothing to do with the analytics. Mm. And, and that just doesn't, I'm, I'm a PhD, I'm an analyst, I'm a geek. Mm. Obviously someone like me does not want to spend most of their time managing people's emotions and politics. Right. I just want to do the analysis <laughs> right. and then I want to help you apply it. Like I'm willing to go that extra step and help you apply it. Mm. But I want to do, I wanted to do that from a position where people coming to me as the authority. And what I found out in the world I was in was that you're not, the consultant was just a tool, mm. political football. Mm. What, and, what? and that's a lot of what goes on, especially in the less value added or areas of consulting in the yeah. public firms. So I'm not talking necessarily about elite management consulting, although some of that is very much like this. I mean, mm. th those teams are often at McKinsey just used as pawns by executives. Um, they may not even realize it. <laughs> mm. it's, just not, it's very distasteful. It's not interesting to me. Mm. 
the idea is taking is being able to do an analysis that leads to behavioral change on the business side that then creates real impact. And I have done it on my own, and I wanted the opportunity to do that. So if you listen to my podcast, Startup Confidential, it, it's sort of how I talk right now. It's not that different.、Mm. It's like a, it is literally a zero BS. People, people use this cliche like I'm the zero BS, blah blah. You know, this is a big、mm. American.、Game. And everybody thinks they're that. I am. <laughs> uh, what because is- <laughs> because if you know anybody who's high functioning autism, they can't lie. Yeah, and if if they're in a situation where they have to lie, they literally have a panic. They do two things: they have a panic attack, and I've had those. Or they leave the room.、Mm. Mm. And I've done both.、Mm. Oh. <laughs> you know, and I, that's what I mean by truth telling. Yeah. So it's different than you know, it's it, it's like hardwired. Like I don't、yeah. have the social filter, which is oh, if I say this,、mm-hmm. this is going to unleash a whole problem, right? So what I usually do with my clients is I disarm them at the beginning,、hmm. and and what I learned late in life, Cliff, is the best way. If you think you're about to offend somebody, or basically just trigger them emotionally, not out of malevolence, but you're just thinking they're not going to like this, <laughs> the best thing you can do is first soften them up by making fun of yourself,、hmm. attack yourself un- in an unrelated topic. So that's usually how I start all my sessions. <laughs> is I just start making fun of myself, or in some cases I'll I'll use my own business and say, you know, I'm about to, I want to talk about something. And, and, you know, I've made this mistake before, and I tell them my story. I tell them my B to B version of what I'm going to harangue them about, and then I go in and say, this is what you're doing with your business. It's destroying your business. Because <laughs> if you just jump into that, they're called security. These are very insecure people to work with. They, they should be because they're always broke, <laughs> and they're not. You don't. This is not a. Well, you know, it's not a. There's no license to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, there's no screening at all, right? So, in a totally unregulated field of just chaos, basically structured chaos, yeah. Yeah. you've got people who kind of know they don't know what they're doing. And you know you need to be careful when you talk to that group of people. But I love them because they're absolutely not political people.、Mm. When they're interacting with me, they just—they literally just like help me. Yeah. Yeah. And so it takes a different kind of conversation, but there's no politics to it. Yeah. And I, I won't bore you with conversation anecdotes from working with Kraft Foods and these companies. It's just like <laughs> we just spent an hour, and I communicated one insight because we had to tiptoe around it. Right. For forty-five minutes, because there's a VP in the room who violently believes it's false. <laughs> so tell me something. <laughs> you know, and、uh, that's often what Cliff. That's why they bring consultants in. Usually,、yeah. they bring the third party in because the third party tells the obvious that everyone else in the company knows to the executives, being a complete worthless.、Mm-hmm. Right.、Customer. Right. <laughs> right, 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 right. Not enjoyable work for me, right? Because、right. I'm <laughs> one insight, one hour. I want to go to sleep.、So. Right. What roadblock? <laughs> what roadblock did you run into? The roadblocks I had was I don't have an MBA, man.、Mm. I don't even have a business degree from college. I am I'm a classic overprivileged white upper middle class liberal arts kid.、Mm. I went to Ivy League school. I got a PhD. I wanted to be a professor, Cliff, when I was 16 years old. 
Mm. I go talk to my parents. I, I said it many times in public and in private. And I clung to that goal until 2002. And I said, this is destroying my life. Yeah. <laughs> mm. um, and it can't continue. And I left, mm. I left the academic track, not because I wasn't doing well, but because I couldn't, I just, I couldn't do it anymore. And anybody who knows anything about tenure track <laughs> and how, what it takes to get it today. And even 20 years ago, it uh, wasn't that much different. It just mm. wasn't for me. So, and I didn't even know I had Asperger's at the time, but I was having a massive violent reaction to the social chaos of just running around the country doing nine month jobs. Every nine months, mm. new, new place, hoping someone will give me tenure. People who have autism cannot handle that level of chaos and uncertainty. <laughs> yeah. So I needed structure. I needed some kind of thing. And yeah. when I went out on my journey alone as a consultant, I had spent you know, with the business I have now, I had spent 15 years trying to move from academia into a kind of a business orientation to clients, to stakeholders, to yada, yada, yada. And that, you know, that was a massively painful transition for me because <laughs> I was like a classic academic geek, mm. uh, difficulty shutting up. <laughs> want to keep you know don't know how to speak in one to two sentence little beer bursts which is how business people talk you know because it's political it's about bursting yeah. and then you listen for the response you assess the political consequences of the response you then do all this and then wow. you say something else you know it's extremely calculated behavior. Mm. but someone like me i don't calculate i just go <laughs> you know you get me in a one-to-one -one situation and i can be highly premeditated but if there's 10 people in the room, I've lost track of everybody's emotion in 30 seconds. But so I had, I didn't have the professional business skills. I didn't have the conversational skills. I also had this neurological problem. I figured out in the middle of my business consulting career, which explained a lot of things to me, but I also didn't have a certain, I didn't have a bunch of skills I needed to function independently without a staff. Hmm. Now, you don't have to have like Asperger's to realize that going from a situation where you have staff that you can throw work at to having none, you might want to think that through. <laughs> because even if you're, you know, I'm not going to do this, but even if you are the kind who goes out on their own and they actually do want to have employees and scale something, there's still going to be a period of a couple of years, almost assuredly, where you shall be doing it all. And so I literally didn't have the Excel skills, Cliff. I came up with this idea like 12 years ago to do this. Mm. I was a writer. Right. I barely had the PowerPoint skill. <laughs> so, it's like, so, you know, when I had this decision that I, I'm going to have to go out on my own for my sanity, essentially, my yeah. mental health, yeah. I had to develop all of these skills in preparation for that. I had to, I basically had to give myself an amateur MBA. Mm. I just read everything. Mm. And I, Instead of giving all my, my team all the, the so-called crap work, mm. I actually did a lot of it myself because it built my skills up. And then I had mm. my staff training me on how to do stuff because mm. <laughs> they were really good at Excel. <laughs> so I swallowed my pride and I'm like, I'm going to have to go back to school essentially while I'm getting paid here and do mm. this or I'll never be able to go out on my own because I didn't have an, I really didn't have another option. Then, um, without a big business degree, you're not going to get a, like a big consulting 
position at McKinsey or BCG. They just don't hire those people really. Not usually. They've started to recently, but they tend to be very exceptional folks and they don't have my makeup. Hmm. They're not going to deal with someone like me. Hmm. So, because their interpersonal standards are literally world-class, like diplomatic grade. Right. And, and I find, I don't have, I'm not offended by that. I just can't do it. So it's like, right. I don't, I knew I couldn't go to a traditional firm. <laughs> so mm. I was like, there was a choice between staying where I was, which was not good. And then just doing my own thing. And I'd always wanted to do that, mm. but I didn't have the skills to go out and promote myself too. I couldn't, I couldn't promote myself. I know that sounds hard mm. to believe listening to this, but it, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> So, so what epiphany did you experience that took you from where you were then to the transition where you well the, the epiphany for me was i it took me like a lot of years and, and actually took therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy highly recommended to people who are in situations where they think they may have neurological disability or anything or they just don't they literally are so stuck that they're just depressed hmm. highly recommended because i what what at the time, my therapist was able to unlock from just listening to me was that this issue of you need to be the analytical authority and everything you're talking about, about where you're working now, you're not being treated that way. You talk about your job as if you're a monkey on a string. Mm. Mm. <laughs> These are the metaphors. <laughs> you know? mm. And you know, it, it took us a while, but I realized that the context I was working in was just a horrible fit. Yeah. And I had all this, and I needed to find another context. I, I was spending, I spent years trying to make myself fit into where I was. Hmm. I realized that that was never going to work because what I wanted to offer the world was not something that commercially the, uh, these firms want to sell to companies. Hmm. They don't want to sell truth telling. Hmm. Are you kidding me? They want more business. Right. On the back end. So I needed an op I needed a company where I could be radically have radical candor in my consulting, but also in my marketing and everything else. Because I like I I'm not happy, Cliff, if, unless I'm doing that. Hmm. How did you get your first? I mean, it's like I literally I was in conversation with my former executive peers, and like it's like why do you have to? Why do you have to? Why can't you just let go of the need to like? Hmm blah blah all this basic stuff yeah. that business people do if you've ever read a book called um catcher in the rye or heard it mm -hmm. yes you know holden caulfield you know we might call him mentally ill but basically i think the guy has asperger's mm. because that's how i view the world like i don't deal with phonies um i don't even work with them i screen them out i turn away half my leads because mm. I meet people who are like, they've come to, they've, I don't know, read my book and they decided, I know this guy, we can make use of him. Mm. <laughs> we'll make, we'll take his brain and we'll pay him some money and we'll get him to do this thing that we've predefined. And what they do is you, they reduce my impact. Right? Mm. So in my world, I come in, I diagnose the whole business with a focus on how we grow demand, right? So the demand side of the business. And there's probably a hundred touch points and variables to analyze. And this is the kind of stuff I love, comple complex analysis. But they'll come in and they're like, well, we have a packaging, we need a packaging, we have a packaging symbol problem. Can you help us with that? I'm like, nope. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't work with people who, who have no industry experience, but want to tell me what the scope of what I'm going to do is going to do. 
Mm. And you might now you're probably saying, God, that's a rigid way to act. But unfortunately, that's how I am. I think it's real. But the thing is, the thing is, I want to have the maximal impact. So if someone's coming to me and they have they think they have a packaging issue, I will receive I will openly receive that. But the scope of the project is a total business diagnosis. And I'm going to decide how that is done because you hired me. I'm going to decide how that's done. And if we talk about packaging, we will. But that's if I think it's a big issue. Well, let me ask you this. And that may be the least important thing we talk about. <laughs> you know, and they well, have to be ready for this. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you this. How, with with uh, all of the complexity that you weed through, how did you get your first client? That's a good question. It. God. I got my first client. I set my fees really low. The second piece of humble pride I knew before I even jumped ship from my, because I was making like 200000 a year at my other, I mean, that was a lot of salary to throw in the toilet. Mm-hmm. I just blew it up with a shotgun. And I'm back to zero, basically. So I reduced my fees because I realized I need re- I need cash flow. This is not the time to worry about maximizing my fees. Right. <laughs> it's just like, and I knew I was building, I knew that tw- my 15-year career meant nothing to my new audience. See, I knew that. Like they didn't care that I worked for Kraft and Coca-Cola. They're entrepreneurs. I mean, they're not even from the industry, right? So right. I had to get to their, I had to get inside their head. And so I did really cheap work just as form of market research. Like it wasn't a business model that was ever going to be viable, but I had to get work with people. When I got my first client, before I left, I got myself engineered into a conference speech that ended up being in a, in a webcast live. Mm. So I got a lot of reach while I gave it. And I'm not a bad public speaker. I just have to rehearse about a hundred times more than most people. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, um, but when I do, it's good. So, uh, but it was a good speech and that got some initial people to literally email me and call me. That was back when I had my phone number, my cell and my email on the footer. Mm. Uh, if you go now, you will not see that because I'm um, so, and, and as you can imagine, I'm not the kind of person who's just dying to get on the phone with me. Right. So right, I got right. no interest in that whatsoever. <laughs> I get and that sense. <laughs> so it was really tough because I had to yeah. open myself up to that. So I right. took like I took every lead, screened nobody out. I mean, I'm, they screened themselves out if they didn't want to pay my small fee. But I think I got it from that video. And then I started LinkedIn actually was basically... It incubated this thing. I, I hate to sound cheesy, mm-hmm. and I don't want anyone to think that, oh, I too can become a successful six-figure consultant by working LinkedIn. Maybe, but you know, email me at James at Premier Growth Solutions, and I will I will personally tell you what it took. <laughs> I'm not mm-hmm. gonna do that now. Mm-hmm. So I what I did was I posted every day for months and just built this following. And so people were, I got clients from my posts. Mr. Truth Teller, Mr. Candid Guy. James, one guy was like, James is the guy who says what we're all thinking, but no one else has the guts to say it. Literally. Mm. Mm. (laughs) I started getting that feedback and I'm like, well, this is working. I found a content niche to get attention. Mm. And the only danger with the content niche is I I turned into Joe Rogan, but I said, I can can manage that, you know, and I'm not misinforming people, Mm. but we can go here and I can set that boundary. And then I just doubled down on it. I tripled down on it. Mm. So I listened to my consumers and I basically just fed these people. All of that time in those early projects, I didn't make money. 
really. I mean, they were horrible on an hourly rate, a horrible business model mm -hmm. for an independent consultant. But I was able, like an anthropologist, I was with my tribe. My tribe mm -hmm. was insecure, underfunded, naive professionals with interesting ideas who were hell-bent on scaling them and needed massive amounts of help. Mm. And more than even I can give, right? So all sorts of help. Mm. Uh, and <laughs> and it, you know, I, I fell in love with my tribe. Yeah. But you do it through empathy, right? So I encourage yeah. people in the beginning, if they do anything like this is, first of all, save up some money like I did or take a home equity loan or something just to cover your groceries if that needs, be, it needs yeah. to be the case. But don't just start thinking that like, you're going to have your mature client base. Never going to happen. And instead of seeing it as, oh God, I have to sell myself too cheaply and this is so annoying and all these other ego-driven things, you need to reframe it and say, I need to spend the first two years doing market research to find the ideal client base, to find my niche, all this other stuff. Because when you approach it with empathy like that, like an anthropologist, you're going to listen, you're going to see the issue. And then when you develop your services to solve the issue, that's when this takes off. And there's never been a better time to do that, but most people don't do the research, Cliff. Yeah, yeah. They don't listen. Mm. Mm. I, 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 I had to I learn it. to listen because I'm so awkward, interactional. Yeah. Yeah. I listen because otherwise, you know, I can't navigate. That's yeah. the only benefit I've had, I think, as an Asperger's person is that I cause people enough annoyance that I've gotten the feedback all my life. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. But if you're like the no, if you're like sociopath smooth, Cliff, you know, yeah. you never, no one ever gives you feedback, and yeah. so those are the people that never listen, mm. right? Because they've never been forced by society to shut up and listen. Mm. Mm. <laughs> it's a particularly bad male problem mm. in the U.S. Well, let me ask you this. Yeah. <laughs> so this is this is what I consider to be. The segment is three segments. The first segment is about your journey. And I just want to whet the appetite for the listeners right now. So that's the first segment is journey. The next section I, I consider to be your niche. And okay. the way I excavate the niche is I, I see it as five things. It's your passions. What do you do that's purposeful? The patterns of what you do naturally well. Your, yep. your, what, your proficiency is what you've learned to do well over time. And then problem solving is what people come to you to solve in a unique way. So if I were to ask you, what are your passions? What do you do that when you do it, you get ignited? Getting a lot of complex data and sort of diagnosing, you know, finding the key insights that are going to lead to business transformation um, or surprise the client with something they didn't realize about their business that they need to know. Yeah. Or just confronting them with a reality they may know but are running from. But that's when I get excited. Like when the when I get my big zip file from my client, <laughs> you know, <laughs> all their background info. That it's like Christmas, man. <laughs> and I, yeah, I don't know how to. I, I feel sorry for folks who don't feel that way. <laughs> so I, there's a joke amongst authors like myself, which is like, and writing is my oldest passion too. And and mm -hmm. we're. So I created a business model where 80% of my clock time, like right now, is content marketing. 80%. 20% is billable. I don't even fill the 20% yet. So there's plenty of upside at my hourly rate. Mm. I fill like half of it. Mm. And that's all deliberate. Mm. 
this is why I studied business on my own time before I didn't make this movie. <laughs> but I studied the management consulting model, right? And you have to spend most of your time when you are a consultant doing outreach. And in my case, it's the absolute extreme of 80, 80%. Mm. Podcasts, blogs, LinkedIn posts, commenting on other people's stuff, doing podcast interviews, all this stuff. It's a lot of time. Yeah. Um, but that's what feeds the tribe. Mm. They just keep. Oh, he's still there. He hasn't yeah. retired yet. Looks great. Hasn't retired yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not lucky like you, where I can hide the gray by just getting rid of it. So the point. <laughs> just a minute. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> I just. I'm not even hiding it. See. So, yeah, he's still around. Still available. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. Because I learn, I'm a marketing student from a behavioral perspective. I know that the, the reason that the reason that you continue to have business is that your people are continually aware of you. Right? Yeah. So anyways, so my passion is writing, and that is a lot of what I do for promotion and content marketing. And that what do you do most of my time? What do you do that feels purposeful? For me, it's. I mean, the whole business has had a. A goal of helping people avoid the known mistakes mm. of being an early stage company, and I'm not the only one who talks about the mistakes, but I'm the only one who basically oh, talks about it constantly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So people have learned that oh, if I want to get motivated, I go listen to this podcast. <laughs> if I want to get a dose of reality, <laughs> then then I go to this guy. You know, and I think I. The goal was obviously to attract self-critical founders to become good clients because yeah. those tend to be the best-behaved clients, so the ones that realize something's amiss. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, just like therapy, like you can't do therapy with someone who's like, "Why am I here?" Mm. No, they already have to know why they're there on session one, or this is going nowhere. <laughs> right, right. If they don't know why they're there, it's like bye bye. <laughs> <laughs> what patterns do you have? What do you do naturally well? Uh, analyze complex phenomena. I, I think one of my skills, ironically, is actually explaining complex things mm. in simple terms. And that wasn't true 20 years ago. Mm. That's something I worked on, but it, it, um, not a lot of people who have, a, even a lot of people who have a lot of experience, mm -hmm. can't necessarily do that. Hmm. What do you do that you that is proficient for you? What do you What have you learned to do well over time? Writing that takes a lot of work. Public speaking, not easy for me at all per se. Although it's much better if the audience is huge. Ironically, mm. it's, it's worse when it's like one on eight. It's much better if it's a thousand. <laughs> oh yeah, why is that? Well, because I, with my well, people who have autism, they can't. Mm, they're unable. The brain doesn't really mo mon uh, manage easily the monitoring of people's emotional states, which is we read off the face right? yeah. and body language. Mm. So if I'm in a room of eight people, I can see all that. Like my brain can see it. Like the data is coming in, <laughs> but my brain shuts 100% of it out. Mm. Yours probably shuts 75%. But the the twenty five percent that it lets in is just enough for you to be socially neurotypical in your interactions. Like if half mm. the room starts frowning, you realize that and you say, "Hey, I'm confusing people." Mm. 
I just keep talking. <laughs> so when, when I'm on a stage, I just don't. So when I, when I, <clears throat> and then what happens though, you're saying, so why is that a problem? You just, you just bulldoze through. I'm like, ah, but then what will happen is randomly in 20 minutes, 20 minutes in, I'll realize they're glaring at me. And then I have a panic attack because mm. okay. I don't know what to do with the information. And I realize I caught it late. Okay. But if I'm one person on, and there's like 400 people and there's big lights and everything, they're just a bunch of monkeys. Just, <laughs> they could be orangutans. It doesn't really matter. I mean, I can't, I can't see anything. I can't see a glare, a scowl. They could be asleep. I don't even know. So, right. <laughs> so that actually works a lot better. <laughs> but if they're like right in my face, I had a meeting with a horrible sales meeting with this Japanese company where one of the guys literally fell asleep. Wow. And in Japan, they're so hierarchical that they didn't want to say anything because he was like the head on you. Right. They just pretended it wasn't happening, which made it even more awkward for me. <laughs> and I, I, he was well asleep before I noticed. Right. And by then I didn't know, I just didn't know what to do. I was, what I, I what do you do, Cliff? I, that's right. a weird situation. Yeah. <laughs> for anybody, you know, for anybody. Uh, but I literally have no clue. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even know if I should bring it up. So, <laughs> uh, um, what 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 do people come to you to solve? What problem solving techniques do you have? How do I grow exponentially? How do I grow in the high double digits mm. and know that my know what parts of my playbook are working, my tactical execution are working to create that, and what are a waste of time? I just did this for my own business a week ago. I killed off a whole bunch of things I tried last year, <laughs> so, mm. you know, and that's what I do with my clients is I help them come in and just rationally without emotional attachment, say, I don't think your Instagram posting is doing anything. Right. I, I think that internal team time needs to be spent doing X because X has a better track record for these kinds of brands, getting what you need out of your PR and marketing. Mm. I'm just you know, that kind of, thing. um, did that answer your question? Yeah, it did. Uh, for me, um, that it whatever people call upon you to solve, that really is what the key to, to that question is. Um, but that's the second segment that we have. The last part that we have is where I really want to get from you. Um, although you're speaking to me, I want you to imagine that you're speaking to your younger self. Right. And so these are your secrets. <laughs> these are going to be your secrets. So 20 years ago, what one secret would you offer to your pre unit self uh, that will help accelerate you from where you are at that moment in time to where you are today? Oof. Mine's a bit unique, but I don't think it's uncommon to folks to overachieving folks like myself. I don't know. I, I don't hang enough. I don't hang out with 22 year olds. <laughs> <laughs> so just so my wife is clear, I don't do that. <laughs> um, but maybe it's changed, but I, I would tell myself to not develop a rigid view of your career. Don't do what I did when I was 16 and just, and literally fixate on something that was uh, not going to happen for 20 years because we live and I'm actually working on a book and they'll come out in two or three years on this issue. Um, we're living in a society now which is changing at a pace where you 
Parents cannot explain how the world works. No adult can explain how the world is going to work by the time you're 30. They don't have a clue. Um, and I was encouraged, actively encouraged, to, to fixate on this. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm, it was entirely my fault. But I mean, the world really encouraged it in the late 80s. You want to be a professor? Go for it. Right. That seems sensible. It's actually nonsensical. <laughs> you know, and, and I just clung to it. And I probably, I mean, I'm very glad I finished the PhD. Yeah. I have no regrets about that, but I think the state I was in when I finished didn't realize I had to, I had to do something else. And a lot of that was personal because I just couldn't, I couldn't live like a hobo in a rail car right. with no job security. I needed stability in my life <laughs> right? because of my brain makeup. I didn't, I'm not that kind of person. So. I did nothing to prepare for this world that I found myself in. And so it was, I mean, I got extremely depressed, clinically depressed for at least a year. And that, I mean, it never got to the point where I, was, I wanted to self-harm or anything like that for whatever mm. reason. Maybe I'm too much of an egomaniac, but I think mm. the point is that mm. <laughs> um, it was bad, not constructive. A lot of time was wasted. I didn't have the adaptability skills. And so I would tell myself, look, if you want to do the PhD, go for it, man. But you need to you need to be developing other skills on the side, and you need to have a plan B and C. Hmm. And you need to also wake up every day and say, you know what? Plan B is not inferior; it's just different. Yeah. Hmm. So anybody, and you, I don't know if you relate to this yourself, but I think yeah. anybody who's listening who's been on the professional career track where you're, you know. Becoming a medical doctor is not that different than becoming academic because it's a massive amount of school and residency. So you 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 say between the time you say I would like to go to medical school, which is the second year of college basically because you got to do pre-med, and the time you become a non-resident full-time doctor is like a decade. Hmm. You don't know what is going to be going on in the world, your life, or anything in ten years. Hmm. So go get the medical degree. That's great. Work, and if it works out, that's great. But you've got to have other skills, other passions, other something. Yeah. Because the world is not the '50s anymore, where when you raise your hand, which was white and male, hmm. and you say you want to be a doctor, there was literally no reason that wasn't going to happen. Hmm. Of course, it was going to happen. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. It's just not the world we're in anymore. So you don't know if you're going to want to do it. You don't know if you're going to like it. You don't know if you're good enough. Hmm. So you got to have other other things that you. So multiple passions. I have that now in my life, but I didn't when I was I was super narrow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so so last question that I have for you: How do you know when it's time to change course versus staying focused on your goal? When. If you're pursuing a career or life objective and your behavior in all contexts that you're in is becoming toxic to people, like your wife, your kids, your colleagues, then I'm just saying as a sociologist, you don't, if your behavior is negative across contexts, <laughs> that's mm. the best sociological sign of depression there is. Mm. Because most people change their behavior based on the context they're in. 
95% of us. <laughs> so if you and this if you've ever were, if you've ever had or been depressed or know somebody who's been clinically depressed, they are clinically depressed in every context. They don't go to work and go, wow, oh, wow, and then go home and get depressed. They're depressed 24 seven. Because mm. it's biochemical. Mm. So that's when you know you have a problem and your objective might actually be the cause of it, right? And so you need to do mm. some thinking. So this is where I was, as I was trying to leave academia, I liked my dissertation. I liked my topic. I liked teaching. I liked writing. I didn't want to write journal articles. I didn't want to engage in the politics of academia. I didn't like the hobo lifestyle and the, la the likelihood I'll never get tenure. Mm. <laughs> so I realized that the objective, I actually, Cliff, I actually, in a depressed state, after some mm. alcohol, threw up some post giant post-it notes on my apartment wall in Chicago and literally wrote the pros and cons of staying in academia. Mm. I had two pros and about 10 cons. And then mm. I just stopped writing. Wow. And I realized, oh, my problem is not that I don't have a wife or, or whatever, which is true at the time. Or that I, <laughs> that's not the problem. <laughs> the, the problem is I'm in a career I can't stand. Mm. Mm. So, and that I helped have, a lot. <laughs> no, it sounds very pragmatic and I, and I, and I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I mean, 10 to 2? I mean, you don't have to be a statistician. <laughs> like, I mean, there's a sign there. There's a sign there. Well, here's the other thing. You could have been in a bad mood, Cliff. So you sleep, you get up, you look at the list, you feel the same way, then <laughs> you didn't need the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> well, so if, if people uh, want to get in contact with you, you know, either uh, because they want to get the book or they want to talk more about you from the consultancy standpoint, how would they do that? So you can go to my website, premiumgrowthsolutions.com. You can learn about my services there. I don't, I don't take a lot of phone calls. I'm not a traditional networker, but if you did, if you, for some reason, know somebody, um, or are somebody interested in, in my kind of work, then you're, there's a whole process there. I outline and a calendar link to set up time to chat with me. But most of you probably would just enjoy, uh, reading my book, ramping your brand. Um, if you have any interest in consumer marketing whatsoever. Mm. And even if you don't, I would be honored if you pass the URL to someone you know who's starting a brand in food or beverage or personal care. And I bet there's somebody listening who, who knows someone. Yeah, right. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. James Richardson, it's such a pleasure having you on today. Your candor, your just pretty much just talking straight from the heart, I think has been something that is one, refreshing, two, genuine, and three, I think outright authentic. And so I think a lot of people get drawn to who you are for uh, all of those reasons and any combination of them. So I, I definitely appreciate you sharing that. And to our niche finder community, I want to also thank you for tuning in today. You know that dreamoctane.org is where you can get the latest book that we have that has just come out, Dream Octane, The Seven Steps to Discover, Develop, and Deliver Your Niche. And that in combination with the Niche Finder podcast, the reason that the two exist is really to fulfill our mantra, which is if innovative change is an engine, your unique dream and ability could be its fuel. Thank you for tuning in today. And again, thank you, Dr. James Richardson, for being part of our program. Uh, it was such a pleasure having you. Thank you so much, Cliff. 
All right. And we look forward to having the very next guest on our next episode where where they can help you by telling their journey of how they did what they did to help you on your journey towards success. Thanks again. Thanks again.